0: Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. I want to ask you a question. It's a question that I know you think about, a question that I know you talk about, a question that you probably will talk about on the way home uh, from this meeting, or at least think about. And it's a question that I want you to think about and care about and talk about. The question is this, are we a good church? Are we a good church? I know that you care about that question. You want to be part of a good church. That's very good. And I really care about this question, not least because according to the New Testament. Uh, I will, uh, on the day of judgment, uh, stand before God Most High, I will see him, and along with my fellow elders in this community, I will be commanded to give a verbal account for the degree to which I and we shepherded this church to be more and more a good church. So, purely selfishly, I really care about this question not in like a driven way or like an anxious way, but with a a barrel of fear and trembling, I care about this question. So are we a good church? And more fundamentally, what would it even mean for us to answer that question? Because everybody in here, right, myself included, has 111,000 different opinions about what makes a good church. And that's not wrong, that's great. That's, that's what makes it fun. And a little bit anxiety-inducing as well for me, but that's what makes it fun. We all have our different criteria lists, don't we, based on our preferences, based on our cultural lenses, based on our previous experiences that were really good or our previous experiences that were really bad, or our stage of life, or our felt needs, or our very real needs, or our theological convictions. And it's not just in here that there's a lot of opinions about that question. Uh, Out there in our proudly post-Christian culture that rejoices in having utterly moved on from something as backwards as Christianity, Have you noticed that everybody has a really strong opinion about what churches should be like? Churches that do X, Y, and Z, good church. Churches that do or increasingly dare to even believe X, Y, and Z, Mm -mm. bad church. And let me just be honest, a moment of vulnerability, It isn't just that in here there's a lot of opinions, or that out there there's a lot of opinions. I need to confess that in here, (laughs) there's a huge amount of swirling noise about this question. At times when I'm not living from a place of rooted security in God, which those who know me well will know is basically all of the time that I'm not living in that place, I just confess to being pulled about from pillar to post, by any number of different ideas or opinions or convictions or suggestions or, 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 or theologies or ideas and, and visions. And I admit that I increasingly get overwhelmed into a sort of risk-averse paralysis that comes from so many voices, especially in our present once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a reboot in the church, I don't know about you, but I am crying out for a voice of authority to speak into this question. For a voice like rushing waters to drown out all the other noise. For a voice like a double-edged sword to cut through all of my different opinions And in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, that voice speaks loud and clear. And it is the voice of the risen and exalted Son of God, Jesus Christ, the head of his body, the church. For the church is not the property of this world. The church is not the plaything of any individual Christian. The church is the people of Jesus Christ. And in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the head of the church opens his mouth. And out of it comes seven double-edged sword-like messages to be written and sent to seven different real-life churches across first-century Turkey. Uh, You see the purple circle is the island of Patmos, just off the coast. That's where John, who writes Revelation, is in prison and he's receiving this vision from Jesus. And then the other circles, just inland, are the seven churches that Jesus wants a message sent to. The church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And in each of those church communities, Jesus brings the light of his faith eyes of flaming fire, across their community and among their community and delivers his authoritative assessment. And what we're going to do from now up till Easter in our little church community as part of our year of increased Focus and increased intentionality and clarity around what it really means to be a disciple. We are going to explore these letters one each week, or rather, cry out to God that these letters would explore us so that the loudest voice in all of our thinking is that of God's beloved Son, Jesus. And first up, under the holy gaze of the Son of Man, is the church in Ephesus. Now, I know you've all come with your encyclopedic knowledge of the church in Ephesus at the top of your mind, but just for those who haven't, let me quickly catch you up. Uh, you might have heard of them from their more famous first album, Ephesians, in the New Testament. Uh, maybe you've read about them in Acts chapter 19. But just because they're a big gun church uh, in the Bible, don't, um, don't misimagine what their context is like. See, Ephesus is not a gated, peaceful Christian community in the Bible Belt where everyone sings 10,000 Reasons from dawn till dusk. They are, Ephesus is a massive trade city famous in the empire for its undying adoration of the goddess Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, or in Greek, Diana. And she is a grotesque, many-breasted sex goddess, a phrase you weren't imagining to hear this morning, who cruelly and spitefully promises fertility if you bow down and worship her by pouring yourself away in the temple with sexual acts the likes of which you have never heard of, probably. And maybe you're thinking, how wonderful. What a liberated and free society. Oh, to be born there and then instead of here and now. Well, maybe, until you read in Acts chapter 19, that this false god and her false promises were never really about freedom and sexual pleasure at all. See, she was more than a little lucrative for the coffers of the economy of the city of Ephesus. See, desperate people would flock to her and therefore, entirely predictably, there was a whole network of traders who sold Artemis merch to increasingly desperate people. See, underneath the seemingly liberating promise of sexual freedom was actually a ruthless business model set up to exploit you and your longings and your pain and to get you to pour your money into the pockets of those who stood ready to turn your pain and your hunger and your God-given sexual desire and your need into profit for them. And it wasn't just sexual immorality that was uh, famous in Ephesus. It wasn't just false worship as a moneymaker. Alongside that, there was a practice called exposing that was famous in Ephesus. Ephesus where the men would be brought, the newborn children of the women that they had slept with, and if they didn't like the look of the child, because the child, as I do, had a little blemish or a little birthmark, or had a disability, those children would then be left out on the hillside outside of the city in the open to die in the elements. They'd be exposed to the wind, to the rain, to wild animals, and they would be left there helpless voiceless victims of the narrative of the city I hope that you can tell that Ephesus though shiny and happy on the outside underneath the kingdom of darkness was running amok in this city and was having a field day and in the midst of all of that Without cultural power, without a great website, without a bad website, without money, without a slick Sunday meeting, without ease, without popularity, without any of the things that we tend to assume are the goal, there's a tiny, vulnerable, little, trembling community of Jesus followers. Many of them have been radically saved from these very same things themselves by the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus won for us in his death on the cross. And now they're seeking to bow their knocking knees instead of to Artemis of the Ephesians. They're seeking to bow their knee to King Jesus and to, more than that, shine like stars in the darkness of their city. Imagine how that feels. Imagine what that's like. Imagine how they feel in that context. And then imagine one day in the post, they get sent the book of Revelation and someone opens it and someone stands up and they quieten down the kids and they say, right, we're going to read it. And they get to chapter 2 and they find that in all of the noise of their city that they could probably still hear at the door they see that the risen Lord Jesus has a message for their little church. I wonder what he will say. Well, what he does is he brings to them four main themes that by the uh, time we get to Easter, you will know by heart because they are basically the four same themes that he brings to each of the seven churches that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks. It's like Jesus' standard four-point sermon outline, okay? And if it's good enough for him, uh, then it's going to be good enough for me today. Um, They are as follows. He brings them a fresh revelation of who he is. He brings them encouragement for all that is good in their church. He brings them critique of what is not good in their church, and then he finishes in every letter with a promise, a motivating promise, if they overcome, if they keep going, if they endure. Firstly, he brings them a fresh revelation of himself. Each letter, Jesus is introduced with a different description or title that gives the church that he's speaking to a little glimpse, a little glimpse of his great glory. For the Ephesians, it was this in verse 1. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now, anyone who was around last week that little phrase might ring a bell, uh, because this is not a new description of Jesus. Rather, it is a restating, a reprinting of a description of Jesus that's already been used in chapter 1. And we're going to see that for each church in chapter 2 and 3, it's a different line from that original vision in chapter 1 that is used to reintroduce Jesus. Now, just notice what that teaches us. Yes, that small, weak, suffering, opposed churches need to see Jesus. It teaches us that. But more, it teaches us that they don't need to see brand new, novel, never heard of before information about Jesus. Rather, they need to remember afresh and encounter afresh and receive afresh all that they already knew about Jesus. And friends, the same is definitely true for me and I guess for you. Uh, If you come here on a Sunday expecting, hoping, waiting with your notebook for a new novel idea that no one's ever heard about Jesus before, you're not going to get it because there aren't any. But isn't it true that we need a reminder to see again, to encounter again, really the same old stuff afresh today? You know, like the Israelites, they um, were given manna from heaven because they were hungry. And if they tried to live off yesterday's manna, it went stale and horrible. And the same is true for our relationship with Jesus as a church. We need to see him afresh over and over and over. And so he comes with a fresh revelation of himself. Secondly, he comes with encouragement of all that is good in their church. Jesus walks among his church and affirms them for what he sees and loves about their community. Encouragement. And affirmation are Christ-like verbal categories. And for the Ephesians, there is absolutely loads to affirm. And so he starts to encourage them. He says, first of all, I've seen your hard work. That is, I think, that they aren't lazy. They put in effort in their discipleship and in their city. And your patient endurance, he says. That is, that they keep going. They put one foot in front of the other. Even when it's tricky, they keep walking. And they don't don't bail out. They keep going. They endure. He then says, I know that you don't tolerate evil people. Now, we probably flinch at that one a little because it sounds like, well, surely we're meant to tolerate evil people. But just remember for a second with a little bit of clarity what's happening around the church in Ephesus. There is ravenous exploitation of the vulnerable. There is flagrant idolatry. There is cruel, vile cruelty to defenceless children. There is injustice raging all around them. And in the church, they don't tolerate such behaviour. And Jesus commends them for that. They taught their men and women that if there was a child with a disability or a blemish, like I have or on my stomach, that they cared for it with all their might. In fact, the church at Ephesus began to go out of the city to the mountainside to bring home and adopt those very children that were being left. They had a zeal for justice and for holiness as the people of God. And Jesus says of them, Good church. Verse 2, you have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. Quick translation, the church cared about doctrine. They cared about what they heard and what was taught. Verse 3, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. That's that they suffer really well for Jesus. And then skip to verse 6. This is in your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. The Nicolaitans were a group of people who were saying that you can follow Jesus and call him Lord, but live exactly like you did before, and that's fine. But because Jesus loves people, and because he loved that city, and because he loved his church... He absolutely hates evil deeds and teaching that permisses evil. And so he says that he hates that stuff because he loves them. And he commends the Ephesian church for not just loving the things Jesus loves, but hating the things that Jesus hates. It's a fascinating picture, isn't it, of what Jesus commends in a church community. Notice that there isn't one comment about a Sunday meeting. But he is so proud of them for staying true to him in purity, in obedience, and in suffering. And my dear church family, to the degree that we live like this in our community and in our day, he gives us his well done as well. But then comes the but. In verse 4, as Jesus brings a critique of what is not good in the church. Verse 4, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Yes, they're pure. Yes, they suffer for him. Yes, their teaching is accurate. Yes, they're zealous for holiness. But the love that they had at first has gone. I want to ask you, did you know that that was possible? Did you know that you can be a church or a Christian... That is doctrinally excellent, radically committed to holiness, suffering for Jesus, undoing the works of darkness in your city, all very good things, and yet inside the love can have gone? Did you know that that was a thing? And in verse 5, we see that the stakes are eye-wateringly high. It really matters. Jesus says, if you don't repent, that means uh, turn around and consciously walk in the opposite direction. I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Translation, this is a life or death issue for the church. This is A or even the defining issue for a church. Jesus is saying if the love goes, the lampstand goes. Or to put it another way, if the love goes out, the lights go out. No matter how many decades more we continue to turn up. I want to ask us to consider I want to ask you to consider have you Have we, have I, lost our first love? Has our love for him fallen from where it once was? And if so, if it has, I don't know if it has. It'll be different for each one of us. But if it has, the beautiful thing, because we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, not Artemis of the Ephesians because we're talking about a saviour who bleeds out for you rather than bleeds you dry, if we have, with Jesus there is always a way back. Verse 5, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If your love has grown cold, you can turn around, you can return, You can repent. You can. With Jesus, you can. And with Jesus, you must return and run back to him. And how? Well, he says here, you do, do, not just think and feel, do the things you used to do when you were head over heels in love with him. I want to ask you, what were they for you? What were the things you did when your love for Jesus was at its peak? And he would invite you, do the things you did at first. I want to ask you, think, what, what did you used to do? in here, at home, in your workplace. What, was, what did it used to be like? And then return and do the things you did at first. Because it's worth it. Because lastly, verse or point four, there's a promise. There's a promise from Jesus for... All who endure, for all who, though it feels like walking up a mountain, keep going and against the odds and in suffering and in a culture that laughs at you, keeps going and overcomes. There's a promise. In every letter over the next seven weeks, we'll see that it ends with a a motivating promise. And to the Ephesians, the promise for them is an Eden like eternity with God. He says, to everyone who is victorious or everyone who overcomes, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. He's saying that where your culture leaves you hungry, if you overcome and return to your first love, you'll get true food from the tree of life. He's saying where the culture lures you to a cheap intimacy, if you overcome, you'll get true intimacy walking with God forever. He's saying where the culture presents itself as a progressive utopia, or at least heading towards it, that the silly Christians will be left behind in. He says, if you overcome, you'll be rewarded with eternal life in the true utopia, in the paradise of God. And he makes that promise. These verses are a double-edged sword, aren't they? And they come to us and they help us and they hurt us. But as we mull over the next seven weeks, are we a good church? Let us be open to his double-edged voice, to his encouragement and his promise And to his critique, let us be, as it says in verse 7, let us have ears to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. If you're up for that, I'd love to just pray. Pray.